Have you seen those funny gifs of a video game bird giving you like a little fist bump or maybe doing a kickflip on a tiny skateboard? You're looking at Falcon Age from Outer Loop Games, which is on PS4 and PSVR right now. In any case, I was really struck by how assertively the game deals with the topic of colonialism and how it impacts both a family and a wider region. Amid all the falconry, hunting, and hat collecting, there's a lot to be said about a game that puts you in the shoes of a reclaimer of land, not a taker. On this week's episode, I talked to Chandana Ekanayaka, aka Eka, about his time living in Sri Lanka, moving to America as a young child, and the ways in which Southeast Asian identity and culture have remained or faded as a part of his life all in order to hopefully better understand what went into this game and the story it tells. We also talk about the business of making and staying in VR games, plus how they brought that cute little bird to life. I'll let him do the explaining though, here's the show. Ladies and gentlemen, you know him as the co-founder and creative director of Outer Loop Games, who just released Falcon Age for PlayStation 4 and PlayStation VR. It's Chandane Akanayaka, everybody. Hey, how you doing, Aka? Good. How you doing today? I'm good. I pronounced that right, right? You, it was very good. Very close. Oh, very close. Okay, because we, we have a tradition here. Josiah, the previous host of the 1099, he, uh, he prided himself on getting it uh, right every time. And I'll tell you, my Midwestern accent wanted to like kick and scream through uh, <laughs> just saying Ika instead of Eka. Is it is it uh, Chandane Eka Naika or is it something different? It's 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 very close. It's Chandana. Chandana. Okay. Uh-huh. And Eka Naika. Apologies then. <laughs> No, no. I mean, that's that's really I've heard all variations of it. So this is it's very good. So we're we're here. And, you know, maybe it's maybe it's thematically appropriate that I uh, slightly messed up your name because we're here to talk about Falcon Age and uh, colonialism, the themes that kind of run through this really interesting PSVR game. Uh, it's also mm -hmm. on regular PlayStation. I played it on regular PlayStation. I'm not uh, I have an Oculus, but I'm not rich enough to afford a PSVR headset quite yet. And uh, I, I really, despite some some like technical issues, I really fell in love with this game for some of the themes that ran through it. And I know that's been a kind of a, a consistent thing that you've talked about during previous interviews. So let's just dive right in. And uh, I, I'm really curious to get to know you more as a developer and what went into you know your uh, mindset starting to make a game like Falcon Age. You you grew up in Sri Lanka, right? Yeah, so I was born there and um, lived there till I was about eight. Okay, what, well, so what was it like growing up there then? Um, it's weird because um, thinking about it now, it feels more like a, a dream in terms of... Really? Because I've lived in the U.S. for so long. Um, I have memories of it, but it felt like a whole different place because it was culturally very, very different. Um, I mean, you know, we weren't... We weren't super wealthy. We weren't super poor. We, we just had a, had a decent life. My my, my dad was a, a a postman there, and my mom stayed home. And we had a comfortable life. Me, my, my younger sister, and my older brother. Um, you know, and then and that, that was fine. But we were also living through the middle of a long civil war that's been going on there for at at that time probably twenty 
20 some odd years. Um, and one of the reasons we came to the U S was my, my parents really wanted to raise the kids in a, in a better environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had, so we had family that, that emigrated to the U S in the Maryland DC area. And that's how we came over. So in Sri Lanka was a British colony for about 150 years, and it was a Dutch mm-hmm. colony for like a, a few more hundred before that, right? Right. And, and, then, uh, and then Portuguese as well. Yeah. Really? Okay. I didn't mm-hmm. know that. Yeah. And uh, uh, so was the was the Civil War, I, I have to profess ignorance here, was the Civil War sure. between uh, more, more so Sri Lankan citizens and governments, or was it part of the colonization uh, kind of out, uh, impact? Well, so after Sri Lanka got its independence um, from Great Britain, um, you know, right after World War II, it was still considered a dominion of the of of of, uh, of Great Britain, and it didn't really get its namesake. It used to be called Ceylon, so if you see probably C E Y L O N Ceylon teas and things like that, because it was it was a you know it was a big place for tea growth and tea exports. Mm-hmm. Um, and in 1972, it, it changed the name to Sri Lanka. Um, so it was interesting because uh, there's a Sinhalese, which is which, which is what I am. Eighty percent of the population is considered Sinhalese, and then there's the other the rest of the population is Tamil, Muslim, and things like that. Um, when the when the Sinhalese took power, they started to push out the the minority in the country. The the Tamil the Tamil people have come uh, immigrated down from northern India. Sri Lanka is a it's an island off the um, you know, Indian Ocean, and it's very close to India. So sort of the northern part is more Tamil people, and the southern, and most of the country is more Sinhalese people. So essentially, the oppressors, the oppressed became the oppressors. Um, that started a civil war over, you know, 30, 40 years. And that's, so people like the Tamil in the north wanted to separate the country into two different uh, states, essentially. And the Sinhalese government wanted to keep it as one. And that started in the early 70s, early 70s, and it, and it continued on till, um, till just recently, actually. And, uh, and you said you, you, you left the country when you were eight with your parents. And right. uh, is, is a lot of that conflict uh, the same way, kind of like a, a dream to you, um, not something that like, you really remember too well? Or do you remember any kind of part about it? Yeah, I mean, I remember parts of it. I remember seeing, I remember there being a curfew, couldn't be after at night. I remember seeing soldiers. I remember seeing uh, people dead that were, you know, shot for various things, reasons. Um, like, there's a lot of that, but that just seems like a, like growing up in Maryland and right. um, being here, it's just like a stark contrast. Um, so I, have, I remember pockets of it. And we do go back. I mean, the Civil War is done now. And my, my mom uh, moved back uh, years ago. And we do go back now. It's it's a little 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 safer and a little easier to travel. Well, so what was what was your family like uh, growing up and then moving to Maryland, uh, appropriately a former British colony too, I suppose. Yeah, but, exactly. <laughs> uh, what what was family like for you on on at, at both sides of the world there? Right. So my dad immigrated first in eighty. Let's see, eighty two. Oh, did he do the thing where like he worked to kind of help get you guys over there first? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he, you know, he was a, like I said, he works for the post office and he had a pretty decent job, but like when you, this is typical story, immigrant uh, story, which is he came over and he had to start over, you know? So his, his brothers, uh, my dad's side of the family is all like a lot of them are here. Um, so he essentially started over working, you know, just working at odd jobs, gas stations, whatever, multiple jobs. And then, um, 
so eventually he got to a place where he could get the rest of us over. So that was that my mom, my older brother, and my younger sister were still back in Sri Lanka. So in 85, we um, got or came over. And at that time, you could be sponsored by a, a host family that lived here okay. uh, that were citizens. So we, we were fortunate enough to have some friends that uh, essentially allowed us to come over. Immigration in those days in the 80s were much easier than it is now. It's a much, much harder to... Um, come to the U.S. these days. And uh, so the a big theme of Falcon Age is colonialism and kind of the, mm-hmm. the outward impact of it, both through individuals and families and cultures. And I suppose the, the easiest way to kind of start this part of the conversation is just what made you want to make a game about reclaiming uh, a, a land or a country or a home ag- against colonialism? Um, so I started... I started in game development. I'm going to jump jump around a little bit, but uh, I've been in games for 22 years, um, and I see a lot of themes that are colonial themes that I don't think people even bat an eye at. It's just very common in games, mm-hmm. like, "Hey, you're a stranger in a strange land. Let me uh, kill all the monster, uh, kill all the creatures, and gather all the resources, and then uh, make a new home for myself." You know, it's very it's very much those kind of themes. And that I'm, I'm talking like big tri- AAA games too. Like yeah. they're very similar sort of. If you think of a uh, action adventure sandboxy type game, one of your uh, one of your first games was uh, one of the earlier Elder Scrolls, right? Yeah, I mean, I yeah, yeah. We um, the last one I, I worked at when I was at Bethesda was the Morrowind. Um, yeah, and those games, even though you're playing like a lot of, uh, for the most part, you're you're sort of part of the community. You, it still see, feels a lot like you're coming into a new area that you've never really discovered before, and you're, for lack of a better word, I suppose, destabilizing it in a way, or, yeah. or coming in and yeah. taking a piece of it with you, right? Yeah, and I, I totally understand why game developers do that. It's because it's essentially you as a player is coming to this world that you don't recognize, yeah. so it makes sense to uh, uh, the character also embody that. Well, tell, tell me more about uh, your your history through game development and the kinds of things that you saw along the way. Sure. So, I, you know, I moved to the States in 85, uh, grew up watching Sesame Street. Actually, it's interesting because I learned nice. the first year I was here, you know, I didn't know any English. Um, so I watched a lot of Mr. Rogers, watched a lot of Sesame Street, a lot, lot, lot of 3 one Contact, if you remember that, but uh, a lot of PBS shows. Um, I was a, I was an Elmo kid uh, growing up. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, um, it took me about it. It's it, it's interesting because as a kid, it, I think you you're just a sponge, and it's like learning the language oh, yeah. when you're forced to. Um, was a lot. You know, it took me about a year to to learn English, and I was you know I I had to, I, so when I moved here, I was in third grade in Sri Lanka, but I ended up going back to second grade, and um, just just because I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> So there's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of stuff on TV. I also were, were characters and things that I think about too, because I, um, not a lot of characters that looked like me or I could identify with mm-hmm. at that time, which we're seeing more now, but I mean, it, it's taken a long time. Um, so I was always into art. Um, so I, I would, you know, start drawing and painting and things like that as early on. And uh, as I going through high school, I was like, I, I know I want to get into art. And I went to a, SCAD, which is uh, Savannah College of Art and Design, for a little while um, in in Georgia. Uh, at that point, they, at that time, they didn't really have much of an art program. It was the mid-90s. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I, did, I didn't know you could get into games. 
as a as a thing. Like I played to tons of games. Like you know, for, when we first moved to the U.S., we had an Atari Twenty Six Hundred, we had NES. Um, I guess during the NES days, you were either NES kid or Sega Master System kid. Pretty much, and yeah. We were, <laughs> we were NES kids, and then Genesis and sixty four and the whole thing. So like I, you know, games were a thing that I just loved, as any kid probably does now, as my kids do now, uh, love doing. Um, but I continued doing art and learning, like Photoshop and things like that. Uh, when I went to SCAD, I, it wasn't quite what I expected. They had a like, good fine arts program, which I was interested in. But I was at that point, I was learning like how to do 3D modeling and and more digital stuff on my own. Um, essentially, I ran out of money uh, at going to art school there, oh, and then moved back moved back home. And uh, friends of mine were going through. They're older, slightly older friends of mine were going through architecture school at the time in the DC area. Yeah. It was mid nineties. Um, and they're like, Hey, we're going to do these 3d renderings, uh, for different architecture firms. Cause at the time, if you wanted to essentially, um, sell, uh, here's what the project's going to look like. Here's what the building's going to look like. Here's what the house is going to look mm-hmm. like. You would hire an artist to do a, a, a traditional painting of sort of the, the design of the space. So what what my friends wanted to do was do fly, like CG fly-throughs of a space. Um, so it's like essentially like the beginning of, of, you know, CG development and things like that, where it was, it, it, it was to the point where it was affordable, where you can do it on a PC. So they're like, we're going to start a company and then um, do that kind of work around the DC area. Because there's a lot of architecture firms in the DC area. Uh, just kind of putting so, yourself out there yeah. as like the, the next technological step in architecture to kind of right, market yourself right. really well. And and they, they came from architecture background. I came from more of a fine arts, mm-hmm. um, 3D, 3D modeling. So it was like I did a lot of the like the lighting and, and texture stuff. And they did a lot of the take the CAD drawing, 2D CAD drawings and make it into a 3D space. So we started doing that. We, we essentially worked out of a house. This is when I was 19. We were working like 20 hours a day, essentially. Like we just lived at the house, got up in, you know, late, uh, hung out, worked on a bunch of stuff, stayed up super late and did that for like a year. (laughs) So while we were doing that, we ended up sending out VHS tape demos of to just the local companies. And one of those companies was Bethesda, who was, you know, 20 minutes away from where we were in Maryland. Mm -hmm. Um, we were in Silver Spring, Maryland and Bethesda, the namesake, uh, there's a place called Bethesda, Maryland, but at that point they were living in a place called Rockville, Maryland, which is 20 minutes away. Um, so we sent VHS tape and they're like, Hey, you look like you, you're have some talent. Do you, would you be interested in doing some cutscenes for games? Um, so that's how we got our first job in games was like this as, as a small studio of six or seven. And people. that was you plus the architecture guys that you were working with. Yeah. 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 Me plus the architecture guys. So That's was, interesting. Like that they got a job offer yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. They're like, um, cause we were doing like these virtual fly throughs and we started doing some character stuff. Uh, that's what I was more into. And then we had another artist who also, you know, was making something, you know, other things that aren't just space character, uh, mm-hmm. virtual spaces. So, and we were super cheap and hungry. Yeah. No. <laughs> I think that was probably the main reason. It's like, hey, these people, these this group, uh, they can do some CG stuff, and they're super cheap. I've I've taken many a job <laughs> in my time. That's like, I don't know the. I I'm not entirely sure I'm the right person for this job, but I'm the person you're going to pay for it. <laughs> and I will still give this advice to this day. It's like, 
if someone asks you if you can do it, just say yes. yes. You'll figure it out. <laughs> I, th- I think it was a Beck song. It was like, fake it till you make it. That's like the advice I live by. Yeah. Man. Like, like there's still st- stuff I do now where it's like, yeah, yeah, sure. I can do that. I'll figure it out. Well, that's a lot of game development, right? Is you're throwing spaghetti at a wall, as my my dear friend Amanda Farrow says. Uh, you're throwing spaghetti at mm-hmm. a wall and seeing what sticks. And your once something does stick, you're kind of trying to to spread it out. Uh, this is a really messy wall metaphor, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you're trying you're trying to make it make it make sense and uh, make it a full lifely thing which is which i feel like is what was attempted you know with falcon age um you had this really cool concept of here's this falcon that is really well animated like it is is easily one of the best like characters in a game i've seen uh in a a good while and building building a world around it that makes sense and like allows you to connect with it in a way uh so yeah so you, you you ended up getting that job with bethesda and then the yeah. last, uh, I, I don't know what's in between that, but then the last few years here, you've been really focused heavily on VR stuff as well, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, Bethesda essentially hired us as a group. And then I, I, I worked there for five years and then I moved to the West Coast, worked at a place called Shiny Entertainment, which um, isn't around anymore. I think it's part of Amazon Game Studios now, but um, there's a person called Dave Perry that used to, that ran it. Um, and we did couple of matrix games for consoles ps2 xbox original era days and then um had my first kid we ended up moving to seattle area i worked at a place called gas powered games which also isn't around anymore um and then then started a company with some other people called uber entertainment which is still around anymore um for about eight years and then started outer loop with some of the same people two years ago and so uh, we'll we'll dive into the colonialism bit here, but I'm really curious. Like I've 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 been a true believer in VR for a good while. Um, right. I, I own my Oculus, and I even you know sweet talked my way into a, a press account so I get everything for free. And I I, tr- I try out as much as possible unless it like looks like total ass. And there's a lot right. that looks like total ass. Let's be frank. But uh, yeah, it's yeah. Yeah. So what were, uh, I, I feel like it's rare to see a collective of people who make more than like one or two VR games before calling it quits and moving on to something more, you know, consistent or traditional. Uh, but you guys have been right. sticking with VR for like about four games now. Yeah, this actually, this will be, yeah, we did four games. So while I was at Uber, myself, um, my programmer, Justin, our animator, Ong, and uh, Ben, who does effects, the four of us have been working together for 10 years now, mm-hmm. I think. And um, around 2014, as everyone was getting hired by Oculus, um, you know, it's like you, you've been in the industry long enough, you end up seeing the same people. And uh, one of the one of the friends that went over to Oculus reached out. It's like, hey, I have this thing that we haven't announced yet. It's called a Gear VR. So they sent us a, a headset. And it's like, hey, you should pitch us something. And around the same time, um, you know, we were, we were in Seattle area, right next to Valve. Um, friends of Valve's uh, had us over and they showed me the early, early Vive stuff. Mm-hmm. I think this is 2014. Yeah. Still duct taped um, together and, and everything just, probably. It, it literally duct taped together. They had the fiduciary markers on a wall. I'm sure there's there's footage of that out there, but uh, essentially the trackers weren't done. Um, and it was, I think it was like two cell phones duct taped together, <laughs> you know, two screens duct taped together. Uh, I was blown away, man. I was like, whatever this is, I want to be making games for this. Um, 
the, I mean, a couple of things were interesting about it. It's like the, the, the feeling of being in a space Yeah. was, was not, there's nothing like that, that, that I've ever felt playing a video game, you know, in, in, on a screen or flat. I don't know what people call it. Flat pancake, non VR. We'll just say yeah. non VR, but I never felt that kind of uh, connected to a space that I did when the first time I put the, the early Vive headset on. And I mean, the, the demo was super basic. The first Valve demo that I saw was you're essentially standing on a box, um, a floating box, and there was like, you're in a room, essentially. The, the room is just plastered with just random texture of a web page. And the, and the uh, Valve attendant was like, hey, try walking off the box. And I could not make myself walk oh, off, off the box. Yeah. I was like, no, I'm not doing this. Even though in my mind, I'm like, I'm standing in a room. There's no... Like there's no edge to this room. It's like I can't just fall. That just that feeling was just so uh, real. It's a um, that y- yeah. And you have to be like pretty careful too with like who you kind of shove into a VR headset. I've I've written enough about VR. I, I I did like a little mini guide for PC gamer of like how to throw a VR party and and you know ha- let everyone have fun in a meaningful way. And right. one of my top tips was basically just like know who you're putting in that headset because the power of vr like even in a basic like horror game like dread halls which has been around for like you know oh, yeah. going on like four or five years now uh that that one is still really powerful just because the pr- the feel of presence in vr uh makes people feel like something crazy is really invading their personal space so it it is it is a fascinating technology yeah yeah, the whole personal space in VR is, is really, really interesting because I, I don't like horror things in VR <laughs> personally. Because <laughs> sometimes, I mean, it depends, right? Yeah. Like I used to try every demo, but I find my I, I found that I get motion sick, um, and I still do. So I'm very careful in try, the the times of things or the kind of things that I um, try in VR these days. But yeah, after the the Valve demo. We got a Gear VR, and I thought it was also interesting. So one of the first things I pitched them was a game called Wayward Sky. that ended up coming up for PlayStation launch. But um, one of the demos I saw was this um, cubicle farm from Portal. Well, it's actually the Portal commercials, right? It's like these little 2D uh Yeah, yeah, little 2D cutout dudes, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. and um, it was just a bunch of them animated in a giant cubicle farm in like a table size, tabletop scale. So you're essentially a giant looking down in, into this little miniature workspace and everyone's like, you know, typing on keyboards and drinking coffee and just hanging out. And that was just kind of blew my mind. The whole scale there, like, it's just, it's like, it's like playing with toys, but everything's yeah. alive, you know? So what, what are some of the, like the lessons you've learned along the way in like both, I suppose, how to make VR games uh, better and better as you go along and learn more and also just how do you how do you sustain yourself as a developer working in VR because it's a it's a tricky uh, uh, tenuous kind of field right now. Right. Um, I I mean I, I'm sure you remember there's a there's a lot of hype and a lot of VC and a lot oh, of yeah. money being thrown out. GDC 2017 um, <laughs> I think was the the big VR year and the the very next yeah. year it was like whoops we we forgot all about that. And, and people were calling the next iPhone. It's like the next everything. And um, I wasn't really feeling that as much because I've, I've been around games for long enough where you see like um, mm-hmm. hype go up and down and uh, people move on. And, and actually, I, I'm, I feel like VR is in a good place right now because a lot of the hype and money have 
moved on to blockchain or whatever the next big thing is that, that the, the next get rich scheme. Um, so anyone that's still doing VR, I feel like are, are passionate about the space and it's more realistic about the space. Um, so I, you know, I think it's VR is in an interesting place. It's not huge, right? Like obviously it didn't become the next iPhone and, uh, I'm excited for stuff like the quest. Um, cause for me still like, you know, I have all the headsets, um, the, just the, the encumbrance of putting on a headset and the wires and the setup and all that stuff is, I think it's still too, still too much for most people. Um, and me personally too. I mean, I, I've been doing it for three years. Like this, this is be our fourth, um, VR game. It's got to be interesting to, still, uh, uh yeah. ha- having motion sickness and yet working in a field that's very prone to that, huh? Yeah, no, I mean, that's, and, and that's really a design challenge more than the hardware because the hardware is certainly capable of not making mm-hmm. you sick. Um, it's just the design choices, locomotion choices. And I, I know people are like, you get your VR legs, you can get over it. And I, and I, I, I force myself not to do that because I feel like if I'm going to design a game for comfort, somebody on the team has to still be sensitive mm-hmm. to it. And I have a couple of guys on the team that are, that can do full locom- you know, full motion speed in VR and not have any issues with it. Um, but I, from, for myself, I, I, don't want to get my quote unquote VR legs. Yeah. Cause you want, you want to be considerate of like your players and the kind of new perspective that they're bringing to it. And if they, if they, if you inoculate yourself to some of the shortcomings of VR, like how can you possibly develop for them? Right. Yeah. And I know, I know it's frustrating for players. Cause it's like, I'm like, I really feel like in this, I'm in this space. Why can't I just freely move around like an yeah. FPS? And, and you know, the issue is, is your, your body and, and legs know that you're standing or sitting in a space, but your eyes and mind think you're actually moving. And that disconnect is what your body's like, okay, I'm going to make you yeah. sick now. This is right. it, it always feels like my brain is, is like heating up trying to say like, okay, let's, let's move our body because we're clearly walking around. And, uh, when you're not that, that's what makes you feel sweaty and nauseous and, and gross. And right. then I have to clean the Oculus headset before I give it to someone else. <laughs> Right, right, right. And, and that's really why we, for Falcon Age, the, the default comfort controls are, are teleshifting. Yeah. Essentially, you hold a button down, it draws a line, and we do a quick blink, and then you shift forward. And that I can play for hours. Like, that doesn't bother me at all. So let's let's move back to uh, kind of the themes that run through the game. And I, I asked this a little bit, of, a, bit of, a little a little bit already, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I kind of want to hear you expand upon it a little bit more. Um, the themes of colonialism run through the game really strongly. You play as this this young right. character, Ara, right, uh, who comes yeah. into possession of a, a young falcon and and helps it grow up, and they become partners in a lot of ways under the tutelage of uh, this, this auntie character. <laughs> and uh, mm-hmm. the game is in many ways about reclamation. So uh, what were right, you thinking right. about uh, when you first started coming up with the, like, thematic uh angle on this game um i think i I should back up a little bit just it's more of a a, when i started outer loop having been been working in games for 22 years i don't remember now 22 21 22 um most of the teams i've been on have been i'd say 90 95 percent white male um west and and at least in western you know in in the u.s uh teams i've been on um so when I had the chance to start a company, I was like, I really want to try to do some other uh, type of stories and, and show some other characters I haven't really seen too much. And part of that was 
you know, so, some of the characters in, in, actually all the human characters in, in Falcon Age are all sort of uh, South, Asia, South Asian, Southeast Asian uh, looking mm-hmm. characters. And the type of personalities like the auntie are characters I haven't seen too much of, I don't think, in games. Which is, a, a, for us, she's a very a typical Asian auntie there's a you... there's a lot of pathos in there right yeah, there's a yeah, lot of yeah. like your personal experience tell me about that because yeah. that she's one of the strongest characters in the game for an obvious reason right and so and the, um, the writer that really there's two writers in the game um i did initial like one sheet just a kind of general idea but like um meg mm-hmm. giant who worked on a game called 80 days mm-hmm. it's also heavy in anti-colonialism sentiment um i heard her on a pod- podcast um as i was thinking about this game and then um we chatted so she grew up in India. She lives in London. Um, so we bonded really well on that idea of like growing up in one place and you know having this other perspective. So yeah, like growing up in two different cultures gives you some really interesting comparisons and perspectives. And she also, being from South Asia, uh, had similar experiences in terms of like culture and people and and uh, identities. So like she really made that auntie character what she is because we're like oh we know people like this you know we 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 have an auntie or we have a mom or we have a a relative that's exactly like this and I don't think we've seen that explored in games so that's sort of how how it started and the other themes also just things we would talk about on a we we have a weekly call we just talk about like where should the story go what kind of you know themes do we want to explore what would be interesting and new to some people, I think, that wouldn't normally mm-hmm. see characters like this. Um, I mean, one of the, you know, I mean, we talk about like, you know, we started about uh, talking about names and shortening names and uh, mispronouncing names. So that's a thing we kind of touch on in the game too, a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, that's sort of where we started. Then Meg really brought a lot of the characters to life. And then uh, uh, Kaz Ka, Cassandra Ka, who's an, the other writer on this game, she really added some of the the darkness and humor to some of the characters too which mm-hmm. also even though it's a, it's a theme about reclamation and dealing with uh, colonization i feel like some of the, my favorite stories are ones that deal with serious topics but there's also um some humor uh you know because people living in the space isn't isn't dark and gloomy all the time like oh, you, yeah. can't, you can't you can't just survive as a person if that's all your whole life right you got to find ways to find humor um, in situations too and that that's just their humanity shining through right, in a, right. in a difficult scenario right right exactly and uh i i, I want to definitely touch on auntie, the auntie aspect again but mm-hmm. i one of the one of the parts of the games i was most fascinated by was um and i i'll try to like not super spoil this there's a relationship in the game where uh one of ara's elders thinks that uh, she should give up and just let the colonizers take over and that like, hey, the, the grass is greener over on this side. Like, look at right. all the good things that they're bringing. Right. All you have to do is give up this mission and give up like this small part of yourself. Right. Uh, is that is that just a like historical observation or is that something that like you've experienced in your own life? What's what's that? Uh, yes to both, because that happened uh, you know, when Sri Lanka got its independence. I mean, there's certainly a part of the population that were like, no, the British were fine. They gave us all this stuff, right? And and would continue to behave the same way. And that's certainly mm-hmm. uh, and some personal experience too. Like I've seen a, a, you know different family members or friends and family that were like, "No, what are you talking about?" That was like life was way better under under the situation. Uh, so we certainly wanted to touch on that. And that happens a lot. That's it's a common thing. Um, 
in in post-colonial settings or, or uh, you know, uh, colonization settings from different countries and, and experienced from people and historically too. So certainly that's something I felt like we could touch on hopefully in a, in a meaningful way. Did, uh, when that happened in real life for you, did that kind of create schisms in, in relationships you'd had, be it family or friends? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting, right? It's like, um, when you have a character that's not a typical character you see um, in in media, mm-hmm. uh, people expect certain things from that character. People expect that character to represent all of one culture, mm-hmm. um, especially minority characters, right? And it's never the case, right? Like there's, we've gotten to see a lot of sort of white culture and Western culture in, in film. So if, if a character is the bad character in a game or in a movie, in a game, we don't expect the, other characters that look like them to be exactly that right mm-hmm. and that, that's just out of sort of comfort and seeing enough of variety of of, of a certain type of character uh, or, or you know, character represent from a certain culture uh, more so and that's our hope too in this game it's like there are varieties there are different nuances to characters even though they all might represent one culture if that makes sense and uh... No, yeah, yeah, totally. Okay. And I just wonder, like, you know, uh, what what have what has generally been the like long term impact of of a men, of a uh, mentality dispute like that? You know, ha- has your life been impacted in some way, or at least like your identity or the way you've had to like express yourself? Oh, definitely. I mean, so my parents were super traditional when we first moved here, right? They expected mm-hmm. them for me to marry a Sri Lankan girl, <clears throat> be a lawyer, be a um, an engineer or a doctor. doctor. Yeah. Yeah, That's like a very, very common thing. Um, And they were, and they worked their butts off. Like, I mean, they, they moved us and started essentially restarted their life, paused their lives so that we could have a better life. And I'm I'm like Mm -hmm. always super grateful, but like I naturally like always been into art. My brother is a filmmaker and my younger sister got into fashion. So it's like um, not exactly their ideal, um, scenario but give to give them credit they softened up as we were growing up because they realized like we, we have a whole different experience than they'd had and and the opportunities they had growing up in sri lanka mm-hmm. versus the opportunities we had growing up here um and you know i just t- I talked to my mom last night because i was showing her an interview i did recently and she was like super 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 proud right like it's it certainly changed but I still have members of my family that are very, very, very traditional, right? Like that just like expect certain things. And we don't normally we essentially see eye to eye because they had different experiences growing up than I did here. Um, and even even my, some of my cousins that are growing up here, they're very traditional um, uh, and kind of stick to the culture that they their parents grew up with. Mm-hmm. And, and that's okay. We just don't necessarily see the same perspectives. So. And that's okay it, too. It, it's interesting that you frame it like that too, because uh, I, you know, you, you're when you move to Maryland and you you begin to grow up, you're clearly taking in a lot of uh, Westernized influence, uh, American culture, mm-hmm. and your parents who have probably had to spend a lot of time focusing on supporting their family and just you know making paycheck to paycheck or whatnot. Right, right. Uh, they they perhaps haven't had the same amount of time to absorb uh, Western culture in that way. They've had to like rely on the communities that they know, right? right. Um, so it's curious to hear you say that like in a way, you know, you you willingly and and gladly let a part of Western culture uh, 
uh, influence you in your outlook in your life. But that was a but that was a generally like positive thing. It wasn't necessarily that like a part of you was getting taken away. It was just, hey, here's the next step in our family, I suppose. Um, I mean, it's both, right? Like, yeah. growing, I mean, I, I can look back and now remember moments of certainly like the racism and, you know, wanting to, people trying to push me into a certain uh, mold and things like that. But I, at the time, as a kid, you just don't, you don't see those things. Mm-hmm. You're just trying to find your way through and trying to fit in. And I, and I mean, I mean, trying to fit in is like, I did that for a lot of my, I think, I think this is common because I, I try to like hide my culture for a long time, like try to be the American kid so that everyone mm-hmm. would like me was, was yeah. a mindset. And that's a very common mindset if you're as a first generation immigrant. Um, Cause you're, you're trying to um, be, you're, you're code switching, I think. Oh, definitely, definitely code yeah. switching. Yeah. And uh, I did that for a long time to a point to, I'm like, I'm like, why am I doing this? Does this really matter? And uh, you know, and even if you're not an immigrant, I mean, high school can be brutal <laughs> to everybody yeah. um, trying to find your place around. Uh, but like, certainly like, there's, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of racism and, and issues to deal with too. But I, I just, as a kid, just don't re- recognize those things. And I have kids of my own now, they're 11 and 13. And we talk about more about that. My, my wife is, is not Sri Lankan. Uh, she's a white girl from Vermont. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so not a traditional uh, Sri Lankan, uh, you know, family. So, and we have multiracial kids. Um, and one of the things, you know, we talk to them a lot about is, I mean, because have, have gone through that sort of um, uh, upbringing. I mean, they, so they have my last name, Ikanaika. My wife kept her last name. Um, she's a teacher and, she, um, and that's fine. Like we, and we were like figuring out what to, what to do with the last names of the kids. And we kind of do a combination of, of, you know, like, uh, more sort of English, Irish first names and Sri Lankan last name and things like that. Sure. So, um, but they deal, they deal with things a lot now that they don't quite understand. They're like, like, why does, why are people making fun of my last name? Why do they think I'm not your son or, you know? Because my, my wife would get this when they were younger. People assumed she was the white nanny because they were, you know, they're dark right. and, and skin tone. And they're like, are these your kids? Are you sure they're your kids? Where are they from? Like all like random things that happen on a daily basis for her. Um, she got a sense of what, you know, like I went through too. It's like, are you Indian? Where are you from? You sure? Like what's like for complete strangers <laughs> that I would never see again. They're like, they just have to label you somehow. And that's pretty like, sure I know my own identity. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, so it's been interesting with, with, for my kids too. Cause I, I show, I was showing off Falcon age recently too. Uh, I was going to ask. Yeah. yeah. I, I saw you t- saying that like your, your kid, what your 11 year old kid realized that like the person, the people in the games looked more like him than yeah. other people. And he was like, and he's a gamer, right? He plays games. He's like, wait, you can make a whole game full of brown people? He was like, yeah, yeah, you, you certainly can. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, and you know, I want, I want to speak to it too. Like I think as when I was starting Outer Loop, you know, things like the Big Sick uh, came out and mm-hmm. uh, you know, Get Out and Black Panther and all three of those, I feel like have certainly done a great job of, of looking at a certain culture and people and then, uh, expanding that to wider audiences that might necessarily didn't know they wanted that or was interested. And, and that makes me really, really happy. Like, um, I think it's a good time and we were seeing a lot more sort of more diverse, um, characters and culture and stories, uh, come out. 
Yeah, no, and and you see the the perhaps the most important part of all of that this this bigger push for more diversity in pop media is the kids who come out of a movie theater dressed like Black Panther, or I even I even had a, a little girl in my showing of Captain Marvel, uh, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 Captain Marvel is a a white woman, but it's still important that like a a female character get presented there in the screen, and this little girl just like going nuts saying like yeah girl power kind of stuff like that that's that's important and that's going to mean that like a next uh, a, a later generation of creators are not going to you know take anything else as as a given um they're going to say like no i i grew up uh, with with representation i'm going to keep fighting for representation in, in uh, my yeah, media certainly and i and we saw this when we showed the game off at pax um seattle last september for the first time and we had this key art which is our main character ara and, and the falcon and we had i had a lot of um young women and girls you know of, of asian descent come by and like oh my god i've never seen a character like this presented in this way um so that was that was like that was really really heartwarming for me to to hear that and see that um and i've had uh recent messages from parents they're like i was showing i was playing through the game you know um my my sons who were who are you know at 10 and 11 mm-hmm. they don't understand exactly why but they see like patterns right they're like oh i see a lot of white characters but i don't see these kind of characters and they were he, and uh, this person said their sons both like commented on it and like they had a conversation about it and why that's important and why you can you know you're seeing more of that and, I, and that like that for me alone is 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 what i hope would happen with this game it's just like you, you can see other kind of characters in games and it is possible to do it. And hopefully it does um, uh, help kids growing up to try to do more things like that. And it makes me think again about the one of the earlier points that we, we were discussing. Um, we, we take colonialist kind of uh, mechanics in games as a given, go into a, a region and, and take or change it in some way. Um, what are, what are some of the ways as a developer that you've seen games maybe consciously or sub or unconsciously or subconsciously, uh, kind of help push that colonialist kind of thought as, as the norm? Um, I think, and I guess open sandbox games tend to do this a lot, right? Which Mm -hmm. is, uh, collect all the things to make, make wallets. Um, yeah and to sell for parts um kill an animal to make like a bigger bow quiver yeah yeah i mean it's it's sort of the my one of my favorite stories in books is dune but it's a very colonial story and sentiment i just like do i like what i like about dune is is that there's this tribe of people that are just these badass individuals yeah Uh, unfortunately you have a white savior that come in and that need to unite them but i was wondered what if wasn't that what if it was someone that's you know as uh, local to that culture mm. that helped do that anyway that's sort of like when i design games like i think about dune as a as a sort of cornerstone because it's a very common hero journey right like he rises comes and saves the people but the, essentially the people are don't really need it saving but that's just the way it was written um and i think that's very common in games too like it's you know, sort of the sandbox type games is you come to a place and this is, I'd see this in Far Cry type games. I see in Assassin's Creed. I was going to say like that, that's yeah. the seminal example there is you literally have yeah. like a, a white uh, 
club uh, dancer boy coming into a, a uh, <laughs> island full of people of color and and reclaiming it one outpost at a time. Yeah. And that was was it Far Cry three that did that? Yeah, yeah, that was three. Yeah. Um, I mean, before five, they finally wised up, they they made right, a person yeah. like at least come from that region. And Far Cry two, I thought, did wonderful job. Like that's my favorite one because you can pick the different type of character. Um, yeah, but there's also they, they deal with some other more more heady issues too that Far Cry three certainly was a departure from. But um, I enjoy Far Cry three mechanically. I thought that was interesting, but oh like, yeah. Uh, I just couldn't stand the myself as the character or, you know, like the main characters and why I was trying to save them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mechanically, it's super interesting. Um, I think the Assassin's Creed, the latest one, I really enjoyed. I think they did a much, much better job. And then um, I can't remember which it was. Uh, Origins was Origins, the more yeah. Egyptian one. Yeah. I thought that did a great job of having more sort of representative characters and from the same world um, instead of coming into a new world kind of set up. And so you do see, see, you're starting to see things that are changing um, and developers identifying some of these tropes and working, you know, working through them or engaging them or working around them um, or, or changing up the stories and flow, which I really, really appreciate. I'm really curious too. Uh, I, I want to ask about the the origins of the Falcon character in Falcon Age. Mm-hmm. Um, that yeah. that has roots in Sri Lankan history, right? Uh, Fal- so falconry has his has a history like ancient history in India and South Asia uh-huh. for sure, and Middle East, and then it spread to Europe um, when sort of like the the trading started between East and West. Um, and then, I mean, modern day falconry certainly. Like I live in Seattle, Washington, and and I could talk about like hanging out with some a falconer up here, and there's certainly falconry here too. Um, the sort of the methodology of falconry hasn't changed in a long time. It's very very similar. Um, but I yeah, I mean I there's certainly the mechanic of the falconry came first for me. So like just learning about falconry, learning about um, uh, golden eagles that can take down mountain goats, where mm-hmm. it's just like. I mean, when I started watching some of this stuff and learning about it, I'm like, these birds are vicious and they're they're fascinating. Um, so we started prototyping the idea of falconry as a mechanic um, for a VR, non-VR game. How would that feel? And I think we talked about it earlier on, which is like the scale change in VR is one of the most interesting aspects of virtual reality that you can't, you don't get the same feeling um, in non-VR mm-hmm. in flat. So the first time we had the falcons kind of circle overhead and essentially it'd be a small dot on screen and then you whistle for her and she, you know, lands on your hand. Like that scale change from being in the sky and being on your hand was just, it's really a moment. Like that really, like there's something in my lizard brain that said, oh, this feels really good. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and then you're like, I should listen to that. Um, and then the falcons are, aren't that heavy. They're, you know, anywhere from a pound to I mean, some of the bigger birds are heavier, but they have hollow bones and they are real fast and they're vicious, but they're pretty light. So the the fact that the bird was on your hand and it didn't weigh much, the believe the believability factor in VR, I think, also worked for that for us. You know, I think I'm gonna have to uh, w- one day when I get a PSVR, I'll I'll boot up Falcon Age again, and I I've been doing. Um 
exercise routines with Beat Saber, but I've been putting uh, uh, wrist two pound wrist weights on my wrist. Oh wow! <laughs> just just to, like help me like you know work up a bigger sweat effectively. Yeah. And uh, I'm gonna have to put one on my left arm and just be like, okay, bird, come to me. <laughs> it feels like it's there. <laughs> um. Yeah, we spend a lot of time with how the bird moves around on your hand so you can rotate that's the thing your, i noticed yeah, too yeah. the most is like the, yeah. the the animation is stunning in mm -hmm. in certain areas yeah 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 i mean we, that's i mean essentially the we knew the draw was going to be the bird right like regardless of if you um are get the themes or get the culture stuff you know i think like how do we as an indie studio of you know seven to nine people because that's the whole group the, at one point or another we've had nine people touch the game so mm -hmm. um how do we as an indie studio in 2019 get attention for our small little $20 game, right? Like um, the falconry thing and, and sort of the bird gifts are, have been what we've, we've been, you know, it's like, it's interesting because it's like you never know what's going to hit and what's going to get people's attention, especially on social media. So um, after our trailer came out, I just started sort of tweeting about the bird parts and people certainly love the little bird, the baby bird that you, that's, that's in the beginning of the game. And part of that reaction was also why we made the bird um, turn back into a little bird um, with the hat, as you saw in the course of the game too. The, uh, the auntie character mm -hmm. and the Falcon are, are connected in a, in a really significant way because it's the auntie who uh is telling you like hey you need to reach a level of respect and responsibility before you really take this creature on right and i wondered if that had any uh like historical roots or if that was something like that you had to research or if that's been a part of like you know did, did your auntie or aunties uh in your life did they uh push a lot of like responsibility on you to kind of force you into a, a adulthood a little faster yeah, certainly. And I, I think it's part of like we we're trying to get across with Ara's journey. Like she's she's sort of um, she grew up with her auntie, her raised by her auntie, but she's thrown the culture stuff out the window for a while. And she gets, you know, she does dumb things and get herself in, in, in prison. So part of her and we go with this in the beginning of the game, part of her saying she comes back and saying, saying like, look, auntie, I'm a falcon hunter. And auntie's like, no, you're not. You're just a <laughs> wild girl with a bird. Right. That's like, yeah. Part of that is trying to get into that relationship of, of Ara trying to connect with her auntie and her family and her culture more too. But she's, I mean, she's essentially an immigrant <laughs> in the same way I was where she ha she knows she has this rich culture and history. She knows she should be excited by it, but she's like, nah, whatever. And that's sort of, I think, uh, as a first generation immigrant, you kind of go through that phase when you're growing up where you're like, you're trying to try try real hard to belong to this other culture that you're part of now. Mm -hmm. while doing that you're ignoring a lot of the things that make you who you are and that's some of the things we're trying to get with auntie and ara and how you know why she talks to you in a certain way and and in, in her own way auntie's gone through some stuff so it's like she's yeah. not the most personable person um but eventually you, you, you kind of understand why why she is the way she is but um certainly like that's more of a that that situation that the relationship is more of like what we typically see or what I've gone through, what Meg, Meg has gone through, you know, growing up in a, in a culture, that's not where you, where you started, um, where you end up pushing that away. So you can try to fit in. Cause I mean, kids, kids do dumb things. We do a lot of things. We're just trying to, 
or like where no this is the way i should be because that's the way i you know i get respect or i try yeah. to fit in and, and that's we're trying to get those across in, in, in that situation with with auntie nara did it did it feel cathartic in a way to kind of put this story element in there and like at least acknowledge that like uh er earlier part of your life um because it that that really seemed like that was the one or two of the developers like speaking to me through the game. Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's something Meg and I talk about a lot and, and we thought it'd be interesting to explore that in a, in a, in a game. Okay. Certainly. Well, as we, as we wrap up here, uh, maybe just one or two more questions about the bird itself. I, sure. uh, the, what did it really take to make like from a design standpoint, I suppose, what did it take to make this bird really feel like a companion who, was as invested in you as it was invested in, in the journey, the journey that you were both taking, you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of work, right? Like, first of all, like getting a character to fly around in 3d space mm -hmm. is hard. Um, like object avoidance and, and just that's flying around. That's just a flying bird, right? There's like a whole lot of work to, and navigation in 3d space for that. But then how does it feel when you call her, and how does she transition from flying around to landing? You know, it looked it looked rough for a long time, right? Like, because she has to decelerate, uh, you know, in a certain way, and then she has to flap her wings in a certain way, and she has to land in a certain way, and then how does she take off? There's a lot of that. And then when she's on your hand, what's her behavior like? What's her points of interest? So we have, you know, if you have food nearby or on you, she'll definitely look at that first yeah. more than anything else. <laughs> And then there's other points of interest for her. If you if you're just sitting there idling, she'll just look around. She'll look at you because we also in the, the eyes making connections, like the bird eyes uh, looking at the player was a very important thing for us because that's really I think that's where people really connect with the bird. It's like when it's looking back at you, um, and that's on something to you typically don't see because I mean, she's essentially your weapon, right? Like she's a yeah. weapon way to explore, and your weapons typically don't look back at you in games. <laughs> um, we thought that was interesting. You know, I guess it's appropriate that um, your your writer is also working on Boyfriend Dungeon, right? So, <laughs> yes, yeah, oh, definitely. Oh man, I totally forgot <laughs> about that too. <laughs> no, those weapons are going to be doing a lot more than looking at you. Oh <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, we don't. Have, we, we should add a dating your Falcon DLC at some point. No, I'm kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> how how many how many little snacks must you give before its heart meter fills up? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, there's that just the animation programming, tweaking, and that that happened all throughout the whole thing. It's layered, right? Like you just get the basics mechanically of it flying around, landing, and then what does it do, and then the interactions between it because there's a dedicated pet button in uh, the non VR mode. Yeah. Um, which which just a bunch of kind of canned animations, and and that's it's it's cute, but it also heals the falcon when she gets hurt. Um. So the the other aspect was the danger aspect, right? Like the falcon isn't just an all-powerful bird. You can't have her do everything. So we were mm -hmm. trying to find this symbiotic balance and gameplay between what you can do, what the falcon can do. Um, the turrets will shoot her down, but if you have her land on you and you walk through the turret and you disable the turrets yourself, um, she won't get hurt. So there's that too. Um, so there's certain things she can get through and there's certainly things you can do and there's and then to, for some of the enemies, you have to essentially like whip them into a stun state, and then you send the bird to hold them up, and then you can finish it. So we're trying to the game the the combat is not deep at all, but there are situations where you have to work together. Um, 
And then when she gets hurt, then she will stop flying around and she'll land near you. And then uh, there's, there's these anti-air turrets for people that haven't played the game that shoot needles. Um, and then uh, it's it's pretty big moment for some people when you have to pull the needles out. For me, yeah. yeah. The the way that the bird was animated and and look, looked like it was hurt, it was it was almost coming crawling back to me. Yeah, with a t- and saying like, please help me, yeah. I'm hurt, and you you had to physically like exert yourself to to put it back to like a a, a solid state. And that, that made me certainly feel something for the poor little thing. And its feathers are all bloody and damaged. And then yeah. as you pull the needles out, the feathers reheal. And then you pet her, little hearts come up, and her health comes back. And then you feed her a snack. Those are all mechanics, are very super, like mechanically things. But I think they ended up bonding. I mean, the players end up bonding with the, with the bird pretty uh, closely. At least from what I could tell watching people play through and, and seeing the reactions. Um, I think we did a pretty good job with that. And uh, I'll ask you one more short, serious question here, and then okay. we'll end on a fun one. Um, I noticed like the, the game has an empath, what's called an empath mode, uh, and that's essentially the combat is disabled, and it's it becomes significantly easier to kind of achieve the various objectives. And that was it seemed to be a, a very conscious accessibility decision. Um, accessibility has been a hot topic, uh, not just in, in the past few weeks here, but also uh, last couple of years here with the the rise of organizations like Able Gamers. Mr. Steven Spawn has been on the show before. And uh, tell me, like, what was that? Do you feel like it's it's got to be important for developers to make decisions like that for uh, increasing accessibility to their game? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it wasn't a part of the original design, but um the um as we were showing the game off at different shows we noticed people just wanted and it was a 10 minute demo right so you you go you're on the show floor at pax or day of the devs or pax east and then people walk up to your station and they have 10 minute timer starts and we noticed a lot of players would just spend time petting their bird and feeding snacks and playing with them and i was like oh man we we, we need to make this a feature it's probably bad because it shortens our gameplay length but i feel like that's fine if you want to pick up the game and enjoy and spend time with the bird. Um, and it's, it's called imprint mode, which is a falconry term. Oh, sorry. No, no, it's from uh, imprint just essentially is the thing that young hatchling birds will imprint with their uh, human falconers. Essentially mm-hmm. they respect them and they're not afraid of them and they become their parent, um, which is what a lot of falconers go through to train their birds. Um, so we wanted to, that mode, essentially you are a, and the Falcon are invisible to all enemies. So you can walk through the space, talk to the characters. You can still mess with the enemies. They just won't fight back. Yeah. And then uh, finally, what what is your favorite item? There's a lot of items that you can give this bird in the game to make him do, him or her do, like, funny animations. Right. Uh, my personal favorite is the skateboard, uh, but what's yours? <laughs> oh, man. Did you find the ladybug? No, I don't think I did. All right. I'll leave it at that. Oh. <laughs> All right, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you, folks, for listening to another episode of the 1099. Uh, Aka, it has been a pleasure having you on here. I really enjoyed Falcon Age, and I, I really hope that like you guys, you know, maybe stick around in the VR space because I want to see more games like this where we, you know, are, are able to tell really meaningful stories and make meaningful connections to like these little digital characters we've got around. Um, what's next for Outer Loop and uh, for you? Um, for us right now, we're looking at sort of the, some of the problems that have come across the game and we're looking to patch it and we want to make a smooth, smoother experience for people. Uh, that's important to us. And um, we'd like to do more with Falcon Age in the world. Um, so we'll see. We're thinking about that and 
Um, I have a couple other ideas there we're playing with too. So uh, we're mostly just looking at, I mean, it's our first, this is our launch week right now. So we're really just looking at reactions and feedback and see where we can adjust things and um, get some rest at some point and then uh, start all over again. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, folks, for listening to the 1099. We'll see you back here next Monday. Aka, thank you so much and best of luck. Thank you very much. 